Church, please open your Bibles now to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50, the final chapter in the book of Genesis. This is our last sermon in, these, in this series. I can hardly believe that we are at the end of this study together. What, what a gift this book has been. How good God has been to us. Let's begin by reading the whole chapter together. Genesis chapter 50. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh and the elders of his household and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Bel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Mechpelah to the east of Mamre, where Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them. And spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. 
And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died. Being 110 years old, they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Have you ever noticed how many Christmas songs speak of God's glory? The song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, says, Glory to the newborn king. The song, O Holy Night, speaks of a new and glorious morn. Mary's song, which we sang today, speaks of magnifying or or bringing glory to the Lord. Angels we have heard on high, glory. You get the idea. (laughs) Christmas is all about God's glory. And, And for good reason. After all, the angels said to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest. And, and in the shepherds, after returning from seeing the baby Jesus, it says that they were glorifying and praising God. The Christmas story is, is filled with the glory of God. Why? Because God's plan to redeem and to forgive his people from their sins, particularly through the birth of his son, is a glorious, glorious plan. It is truly beautiful. It is overwhelmingly glorious. And friends, the glory and the beauty of this plan is seen not just in the Christmas story, but it is seen centuries and centuries before the birth of Jesus, even in the final chapter of the book of Genesis. This chapter is a very fitting end to the story of Genesis because it glorifies God in some very specific ways, in ways that should encourage our hearts this Christmas week. The main idea for our message today is simply this. God's plans are glorious and should make you joyful this Christmas week. God's plans are glorious and should make you joyful this Christmas week. We have four points this morning. Number one, the pattern of God's plan. That's verses 1 to 14. Point number two, the center of God's plan. That's verses 15 to 21. Number three, the pain of God's plan. That's specifically verse 20. And then number four, the future of God's plan. That is verse, verses 22 to 26. Let's begin with the first. Point number one, the pattern of God's plan. Genesis chapter 50 is a very fitting conclusion to the book of Genesis. But it is also a very fitting introduction to the rest of our Bibles. Why? Because it lays out in very clear ways the pattern of God's plan for this world. Now these patterns that are laid down develop over many centuries, but we see them here in chapter 50. Look at verses 1 to 14 with me. In these verses we see Joseph grieve the death of his father Jacob, and then we see him ask permission from Pharaoh to bury his father back in the land of Canaan, and Pharaoh gives him permission. And then what we see next is is quite amazing. What we see in verses 1 to 14 gives us two distinct pictures or, or patterns of God's ultimate plan for his people. His plans that will ultimately be fulfilled through the birth of Jesus in the miracle of Christmas. In these 14 verses, we see God's heart to deliver his people from bondage. And we see God's love for all people, for all nations. First of all, we see the pattern of God's heart 
to deliver his people from bondage. What we see here is actually a a preview to to the great exodus from Egypt that will happen 400 years later with Moses. In this text today, the, the people of God are traveling away from Egypt towards Canaan. Folks, that in and of itself should remind us of the exodus that will happen through the Red Sea back to the land of Canaan with Moses and the Israelites. But we also see words in these verses, words like flocks and herds and chariots and horsemen and a great company. Those are all terms that are also used in the story of Moses and that exodus. And then maybe, maybe most significantly, look at verse 10. It says that they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan. Now listen, we honestly don't know exactly what this means, but it is a very strange thing to add here. It seems to make clear that Joseph and this funeral procession did not take the most direct way back to where they were going to bury Jacob. They did not take the most direct way. We don't know why, but it seems like like Joseph took a very circuitous route to where he needed to be. We don't know why. Maybe it was to prolong the season of mourning. Maybe it was to allow more people in the land of Canaan to see and to hear the great mourning that was occurring. We don't know exactly why, but for whatever reason, the commentators, all commentators agree that the path Joseph took for some unknown reason is nearly the exact path that the Israelites would be forced to take during the Exodus. And so this this funeral procession out of Egypt at the end of Genesis, church, it is a proto-Exodus. It is a a first exodus. It is a a template. It is a pattern, a picture of that next exodus, the greatest picture of deliverance in the entire Old Testament. And so so do you see how God is giving us a, a glimpse of his plan even here, his ultimate plan to deliver his people? Because listen, even as this here today in chapter 50 is just a shadow of the exodus that would happen through Moses, even so, that great exodus is but a shadow of the ultimate exodus that will come through Jesus Christ. The baby that was born in Bethlehem, he would grow into a man, and he would go out into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days, even as the Israelites were were in the wilderness for 40 years. Only this Jesus did not grumble. This Jesus did not complain. This Jesus did not give in to temptation. No, he would prove to be the ultimate Moses, the true Israel, the ultimate deliverer for God's people. And so church, do you need a deliverer this morning? Do you need somebody to break into the darkness? Are you being attacked? Do you feel in bondage towards others? Are you abused or mistreated? Has this world been hard on you? Are you in bondage to your own sin? Oh, church, we all need a deliverer today. We need to be broken out of the chains of oppression. We need one to part the Red Sea of our own sin and to drown Pharaoh and his army in its depths. We need one to set the captives free, to deliver from sin and death, and to deliver from the oppression of this world. Church, we need this baby, Jesus, the one that we celebrate this week. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free, born thy people to deliver. God's plan is unmistakable. He is on a mission to save his people from their enemies in this world and from the enemies, the enemy of their own sin. Christian, find comfort in this, this Christmas week. 
as you go and spend time with your unbelieving spouse or with a difficult family member, as you spend time with unbelieving coworkers or neighbors, as you feel attacked and oppressed, know that this Jesus was born to deliver you from it all. And listen, not only do we see this pattern of deliverance in Genesis chapter 50, but also under this first point, we also see God's love for all people, for the nations. His desire to be this deliverer, not just for a small group of people or for a single family, but for the whole world. I love this story. I love how Egypt itself is participating in the honoring of Jacob. Look at verse 7. It says that all of Pharaoh's servants and all of the elders in Egypt went with Joseph. That's a really big deal. Why would they do that? I love how in verse 11 it says that once they're mourning in the land of Canaan, all the Canaanites see it and they make note of it. They actually name the place after that event. The nations outside of the chosen family of Abraham, the nations are taking notice. The nations are getting in on the action of honoring Jacob. And listen, why is Pharaoh doing this? Pharaoh is participating in this Because Jacob is the man who stood behind Joseph, who is the man who saved Egypt from famine. But as the readers, we know who truly stands behind Joseph and Jacob, Yahweh. We know that God is the reason that Joseph had wisdom and discernment enough to save Egypt. And so Pharaoh's honoring of Jacob is an indirect honoring of his heritage, which is a divine heritage. He's honoring God himself. Folks, do you remember Genesis chapter 12, so many months ago at this point? In Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham that he would not only bless his family, but that through his family that he would bless the entire world. Church, we should be very grateful for this this morning, because this is evidence that God's going to be faithful to that promise. And we should be very grateful for this this morning, because God's heart for the nations, and not just for a small family, means that we too are invited into his plan. This is why... Simeon, in Luke chapter 2, that sees that little baby Jesus for the first time and describes him as light to the Gentiles. Because the baby that we celebrate this Christmas week is the ultimate expression of God's plan, not just to save a limited few, but to offer his grace and mercy to the entire world and to you and to me as well. And so let this encourage you. Let let it encourage you, not just towards gratitude for what God has done in your life, but also what he can still do in the lives of your family members and your neighbors and your co-workers. You know, as Joseph and all the elders of Egypt are honoring Jacob, and even as the inhabitants of Canaan are, are taking notice of it, it's all just a glimmer of how God can cause ultimately anyone, no matter how far gone they seem, he can cause anyone through his sovereign grace to see him, to come to him, to love him, and to honor him. And so the holidays, the holidays can be a hard time for those who are burdened for those that they love. Christmas, which is a time of joy and hope and faith in Christ, can be a hard time for those of us who have family members who do not share in these same things. But if that is you this morning, if you've been praying for that family member for years, if you are burdened for your son or daughter or burdened for your brother or sister or for your aging parent or for your extended family, know this morning that God's pattern has been and his incarnation proves that he is eager eager to draw near to those who are very far off. 
This is the pattern of God's plan. Point number two, the center of God's plan. Without a doubt, the center of the whole Joseph's story, without a doubt, the center of it is chapter 45. Chapter 45, if you remember, was the pinnacle of the story. There was so much tension and strain and sin and relational disharmony before chapter 45. And then at the end of chapter 44, Judah offers himself as the first human substitute on behalf of his brothers. And Judah's willingness to sacrifice is exactly what breaks Joseph down. And then in chapter 45, we see the miracle of forgiveness given by Joseph to his brothers. It's without a doubt the center, the pinnacle of this part of Genesis. And now we see the narrator return to this theme of forgiveness in chapter 50 in order to reiterate the centrality of forgiveness in this story and in order to highlight the centrality of forgiveness in God's ultimate plan for all of his people. Look look at these verses. Look at verses 15 to 21. It says that when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. And so immediately after the death of their father, the brothers think that Joseph might might want revenge now. And so in verse 16, they say, listen, Joseph, our father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Now, we don't know whether Jacob really told them to say that or not. But what is very clear is that they are fearful about whether the forgiveness of chapter 45 was real forgiveness or not. These brothers think that Joseph's forgiveness is a temporary or short-lived forgiveness. They wonder whether his forgiveness is contingent, whether his forgiveness can be lost They wonder whether Joseph might eventually grow bitter towards them and become angry about their sins and turn away from them again. And so they come. They come bashful. They come fearful. They come in humility, I guess, and fear and embarrassment. And they they bow before him. But look at what verse 17 says. It says that Joseph wept when they spoke to him. He wept. He felt deep sorrow over their pain. It was evident that his brothers did not believe that his forgiveness was real. They did not believe that it was permanent, that it was not contingent on anything in them. Joseph weeps over them. And then in verse 19 and in verse 21, he says it two times to his brothers. Do not fear. Do not fear. He says, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Church, this is amazing news this morning. This is amazing news this morning, and it should be getting you very excited in your heart. Your heart should be growing, affected, and and warm to these truths because forgiveness is at the center not only of Joseph's story, but also the story that God is writing over all of our lives. This is why Jesus was born, to save us from our sins, to forgive us, to wash us clean, to remove our guilt and our shame from us, to take it all away. Listen, the cross of Jesus Christ, that moment when our sin was paid for and justification and forgiveness before God was made possible, the cross is the very center of the entire Bible. It's all about forgiveness, church. 
and the joy and the life and the glory that comes through God's forgiveness. And so even as we celebrate the the manger, we do so because the manger leads to the cross. The incarnation was not enough. The baby needed to die. The birth needed to lead to death, a sacrificial death, a a substitutionary death, a, a death which granted to us forgiveness before a holy God. And church, that should thrill our hearts this morning. That should make us want to shout together today. Go through your life. Think through year by year the things that you have done. Think about the shame that you could feel because of your many mistakes. What is it? Is it what you did when you were 17 years old? Is it the one-night stand when you were 26? Is it the the discord in your family with your parents, the, the ways that you have sinned against others? Is it your current laziness? Is it your current pride? What comes to mind when you think about your sin and shame? And are you tempted, like Joseph's brothers, to continually come before God and just assume that it sets you apart from him? Do you assume, like Joseph's brothers, maybe that forgiveness is contingent? Maybe it won't last. Maybe God is going to allow me to sin out of his forgiveness. Maybe, maybe he's going to get so angry this time that forgiveness will not be offered again. But Christian, listen, if Joseph weeps over his brother's fear of him in this moment, how much more does our God weep over our fear and shame and hesitancy to come as well? How much more must his heart grieve when we do not believe his word over us? When we do not believe the words that he spoke on the cross, it is finished. It's done. Your sin has been taken away. It is no longer put upon you. Your shame has been washed away. And you can stand upright. You can stand confidently. You can stand joyfully before your God because the work that he has done cannot be taken away. Christian, let's celebrate our forgiveness this Christmas week. Let's celebrate the fact that though we, though we continue in sin, though we make many mistakes, though we feel the weight of our own weakness, though we feel the sting of our many failures, that nothing can change the work of forgiveness that he has accomplished. May we know this and may we rest in it. May we celebrate it together this week. Listen, if you are a non-Christian here today, if you don't know Jesus, if you never put your faith in him and believed in him and asked him to forgive you of your sins, we want you to know today that there is nothing more central, nothing more important to Jesus than that you would experience the richness and the joy of his forgiveness in and through the gospel. If you do not know him, we, we lovingly plead with you to come to Jesus this Christmas season. Come to Jesus and know the joy of forgiveness. Know the joy of being at the very center of his heart and plan for your life. Know the joy of his gift, the gift of eternal security through his great grace. Now maybe, maybe you know the joy of forgiveness, but you still wonder why life hurts so much. Maybe you trust that you have been forgiven and that your shame has been removed, but there are moments in life, maybe there are whole seasons of life when it feels to you like God is still upset with you and that the the painful circumstances of your life are his way of punishing you for some past sin. If that is you, you need the truth of verse 20. And that brings us to our third point, 
Point number three, the pain of God's providence. I have discovered, Redeemer Fellowship, I have discovered that there is sadly a great divide within our church family. And this divide is particularly sad because we've experienced such, such joyful unity over these last three years. But it seems like our unity is being threatened. What is this great divide? It is the divide between whether we are pro-Christmas caroling or anti-Christmas caroling. The question is, do we enjoy going door to door to sing to our neighbors or do we loathe the very idea? Do we enjoy standing awkwardly in front of people's houses as we freeze to death while singing off key or, are we, or do we appropriately hate the idea and choose rather to stay home and to love our neighbor as God says? It is a great divide. And I don't think that it is any secret as to what side of the divide I am on. I am not a fan of Christmas caroling. And I'm praying for all of you to be convicted and to agree with me in this. But listen, here's why I am personally against Christmas caroling. I am personally against Christmas caroling because I assume with a high degree of confidence that the pain of my singing voice could never be a blessing to anyone else. Listen, I strongly believe that my singing is not an instrument of evangelism in God's hands. In all honesty, like my singing will draw nobody to Jesus. It just won't happen. If you have ever stood near to me while I sing, or if you were here on the Sunday mornings where my mic was left on during the singing, you know that this is true. I, have, I assume, and I think rightly so, that the pain of my singing is so bad that it could never bless anyone. That it could never bring about any good. But friends, I must confess that according to this passage, this may be a faithless perspective. We tend to think that things that hurt or that are painful bring about no good. But God's word here in verse 20 and throughout the rest of Scripture contradicts that thought emphatically. Look at verse 20. Verse 20, church, verse 20 is a key verse. It's not just key for Joseph or for Genesis. It's key for the entire Bible and it is key for every Christian here this morning. It is a key verse for anyone who is going through pain in their lives and who do not see how that pain can bring about any good in their lives. Listen, this is a key verse for those who are plagued with sickness and, and chronic pain. This is a key verse for those who are stuck in depression and can't imagine how any good could come out of their lives. This is a key verse for those who have lost their jobs. This is a key verse for those who have even been abused and mistreated. Joseph's brothers assume, they assume that the, that the pain of their sin and the pain of, of the evil in this world could only bring about bad. They assume that their evil, their, their sin, their mistreatment of their brother Joseph could never bring about a blessing. But listen, Joseph refuses to see it that way. He will not go there with them. Joseph's faith in God is too strong to see it that way. Look at what he says, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph says, you meant it for evil. That was your intention 
And even now, you can't imagine how choosing to throw me into a pit and to sell your own brother into slavery, even now you can't imagine how I could possibly not be angry with you. But I don't have to be angry with you. I don't have to be bitter towards you. I don't have to hate you or those circumstances that I was in. Why? Because God meant it for good. Church, what faith is this? This is extraordinary. What faith in God's sovereignty is this? What faith in God's good and loving plan for your life is this? Joseph believes, as you and I should believe today, that God is so sovereign, that he is so in control, that there is nothing in this world, nothing in our lives, even the most painful things in our lives, nothing can stop his perfect plan. Amen. Joseph is teaching us here. He's, he's instructing us and all of God's saints from this point onward. Joseph is saying, come on, come here and learn this lesson with me. There is nothing that God has done or has allowed to happen that he will not work together for good. In fact, not only, not only can evil circumstances in our lives not stop his plan, but God also uses evil circumstances to bring about his ultimate plan for our lives. Look at what it says. It says, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That means he intended it. He planned it. He, he intentionally allowed it, and he, he even wisely chose it for good. He did not commit the evil, but he willingly chose the evil in order to bring about the good that he ultimately desired for this world and for his people. Church, this belief, this belief in God's sovereign ability to work all things together for good, even evil things, this belief is not limited to Joseph. It is everywhere in our Bibles. We believe as the church, we believe as we see everywhere in the book of Genesis and elsewhere, we believe in the sovereign work of Elohim, our great God, the El Shaddai one, God Almighty who speaks things into existence and who controls all things by the word of his power. We believe that there is nothing, not even human sinfulness that he is surprised by or that he does not take into account. And so listen, yes, this is a mystery. Oh, this is a mystery. It is a mystery as to how God can be absolutely sovereign while also giving us free will to choose. This is a mystery that we will never be able to fully explain this side of heaven but it is also the truth that we see in the story of Joseph and throughout the pages of our Bibles. Joseph's brothers are fully responsible for what has happened. Their sinful pride and their prejudice led to great evil and to great harm. But the sovereign God who is writing the story knew that they would do those things. He planned that they would do those things. And he lovingly, graciously, sovereignly did so in order to bring about greater good for his people and for this world. And so you may say that you don't like that idea. You may say that you don't want to believe in a God who chooses to use the sinful and evil actions of men for our good. But listen. The only other two options are one, that we do not have free will and are thereby just robots without the ability to have a loving relationship with him or with anybody else. Or 
that the evil of this world is stronger than God and oftentimes pointless and irredeemable, but that inherently means that God is not God. And so what are we left with? We are left with believing in a God who is absolutely in control and a God who uses our ability to choose, our free will, which so often chooses evil, he uses it to bring about ultimate good. This is a truly beautiful and all-powerful God. And church, maybe, maybe you don't like this view of God. Maybe you don't want to believe in a God who would ever intentionally allow evil in your life. Maybe you want to point at God and say, God, play with someone else's life, but leave mine alone. You know, I have, the, I have the great and remarkable privilege of counseling a number of people on a regular basis who have endured great trauma, horrible trauma and abuse, and the damage that has been done is so severe. When the filth of this world abuses the most vulnerable among us, I think that we all want to look at God and say, play with someone else's life, God. And the reality of abuse, of abuse and trauma makes it very hard to preach the sovereignty of God in the midst of suffering. But church, this is God's word. This is what God's word says, and it's not only here, but it's all throughout the Bible. But it's not only this. God's word also says that God weeps with those who weep. And he cries with those who cry. And he grieves over the broken and the hurting. Though he allows and intends evil for good, he hates evil at the same time. And he grieves over its effects in our lives. And church, scripture also tells us that, that God does not only allow evil to touch our lives in order to bring about good. No, Scripture tells us that God lovingly and, and sacrificially allows the evil of this world to touch his own life for the ultimate good. This is the gospel that we celebrate, and this is the point of Christmas this week. Jesus came into this world not to live without pain. Jesus came into this world not to be free from evil if he wanted to be immune to evil and pain, he probably wouldn't have been born in a stable. He would have been born in a palace. He wouldn't have been born as a baby. He would have come as a king. He would not have lived 33 years with sinful people all around. If God did not want the pain of sin to touch him, he would not have asked 12 disciples to follow him, follow him one of whom would betray him. If Jesus did not have the wisdom and the power to intend evil for good, he would never have allowed the Romans to create a cruel instrument of torture and death called the cross, and he certainly would never have willingly hung himself on it. But he did. Why? Because he wants us to have free will. He wants us to have relational capacity and not to be robots, but he also knows that our sinful hearts will choose evil every time. And so he wrote a story that included both the evil decisions of man and the sovereign plans of God. And he wrote himself into the story as a little baby in order to become a man, in order to endure the evil intentions of man, in order to accomplish the eternal and great purposes and plans of God. And so listen... Amen. Through the cross, God has proven. Please hear this. There is no evil in this world. There's no pain in your life. There's no darkness that you have endured that he is unable to use 
both for your good and for his glory. And so you can trust him fully today. You can rest in him completely this week. You can endure through that pain with him this month because you know that the evil that you endure is a part of a beautiful story that is being written and that God will accomplish the greatest good in your life. That brings us to our fourth and to our final point. Very quickly, point number four, the future of God's plan. Coming to the end of Genesis, friends. Verse 22 says that Joseph and his brothers remained in Egypt. Joseph lives until the age of 110 years old. He's able to see up until the third generation of his children. He lives a full and a fruitful life. And verse 26 says that when he died, they embalmed him and put him in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph's life is over. And the lives of his brothers will soon be over as well. And they are in Egypt. They're in Egypt. That place which throughout our study of Genesis has been a sign of all that opposes God. Egypt, the the place that Abraham went to in unbelief in chapter 12. Egypt, the place that Hagar came from and from which she caused so much trouble. Egypt, the place that Ishmael took a wife from. Egypt, the place that God spoke of in 26 and said, do not go down there to live. Joseph and his brothers are buried in Egypt. Did God's promises fail in their lives? They are not where they should be. Have God's promises failed in our lives? Church, we may not be in Egypt this morning, but we are in a very sin-sick world. This this may not be Egypt, but this is certainly not the promised land. Can I get an amen on that one? There is pain, and there is sorrow, and there is sickness. There is grief, there is abuse. There are trials of many various grieving kinds. And we can all wonder, Lord, what are you doing? God, have you forgotten us? But friends, we must notice what Joseph says in this text. Before it says that he was put into a coffin, it says in verse 25, Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. Even in this dying moment, Joseph is claiming the future of God's plan for himself and for all of his people. Listen, Hebrews chapter 11 The great hall of faith, which recounts all the people of God and their faith in God. Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament speaks of all of the different people that we have seen in the book of Genesis. And here's how it speaks of Joseph. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. The writer of Hebrews sees These words of Joseph in Genesis chapter 50 as a great act of faith in God. It's a statement of of Joseph's belief that God will not fail to accomplish his purposes in the lives of his people. And friends, we too can know with Joseph this morning that this is true. The writer of Hebrews says that because we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, since we are surrounded by brothers and sisters in the faith like Adam and Eve, and Abel, and Enoch, 
and Abraham and Sarah and Noah and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and his sons and so many others that we have studied in this book. Because we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, witnesses who were so far from perfect in themselves, but who believed in a perfect saving God. So our faith can and should be strengthened by believing that no matter what we are going through, no matter what pain we are feeling, no matter how much this world seems to be falling apart, we serve a God who will bring us up out of Egypt. And he will give us all that he has promised, rest and peace and in eternity with him. And so church family, this Christmas week, may we find joy in him. May we cling to this hope. May we proclaim this hope to each other. And may we live humble and obedient lives before God because of this great hope. Imperfect, but firmly established in the faith of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob.